You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. And Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK analyst. Um, David, how are you? Well, Giles, I'm well. Um, I tr- and I trust you're well. I trust all our listeners are well. And uh, we've got, uh, we're, once again, we're expanding our technical uh, capabilities with not one, but uh, two special guests this week. Indeed, 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 indeed. Look, um, before we introduce our guests, I just want to sort of say hello to everybody out there and we understand some of the anxiety and some of the sort of new concerns uh, about the sort of uh, reappearance of the um, COVID virus in Victoria particularly and possibly also in New South Wales and, um, you know, all the sort of the releasing from lockdowns have been reversed in some cases and we know and, and we understand um, how tough that is out there and look, actually has a bit of a kick-along effect to the energy system as well, but in ways which we probably don't understand yet, um, but we'll probably find out soon enough. Look, one of the big things um, that is um, talked about in the transition of the energy system, and look, I guess this uh, podcast focuses a lot on large-scale stuff, you know, wind and um, solar and even hydrogen and things like that. But one of the big things that uh, we do talk about occasionally is distributed energy, in particular rooftop solar. And if you actually look at some of the forecasts for rooftop solar, and I just actually looked at a bit of a graph, a presentation by the Australian Energy Market Operator, and it was talking about the amount of solar that could be in the grid within the next 20 years. One, it was uh, the amount of solar would be 25 times larger than the biggest coal-fired generator we now have. And it could actually reach 50% of national electricity mar- electricity market demand instant- instantaneously um, within sort of 10, 15, 20 years, really depending on the uptake. And um, look, this has obviously reached certain levels of um, concern in South Australia and Western Australia particularly, and it will happen in the other states. And so there's a lot of thought, and we've talked about this before, about in South Australia, about some of the... Um, things that have been talked about in the distribution distributed energy roadmap. So today we've got two guests um, from um, Mark Byrne from the Total Environment Centre. Mark, thanks for very much for joining the podcast. Thank you, Charles. Great to be here. And Kelly Court from ACOS, the Australian Council of Social Services. Um, thank you also for joining the podcast. Hi, Giles. And hi, David. Thanks for having me and Mark along. So look, we fight you both on because you guys are presenting a combined rule change proposal to the Australian Energy Market Commission um, um, this week, and it's going to be one of three rule change proposals being considered by the AMC over the next six months. And this deals specifically with solar exports. And um, this is a touchy issue for many households. Um, Some households have been limited until they can't export back to the grid. Some have had limits put on them. Some people are suggesting that all solar households be taxed if they want to export. And others like the AEMO are looking for controls um, to switch off solar exports at certain times of the day if necessary, Um, although they do insist that will happen only in very, very rare occasions. Can I get each of you first to 
say what it is broadly that you're proposing and why. And so maybe we can start with Kelly and then go to Mark, and then we might just sort of jump into some of the details of it. Um, so Kelly, can I invite you to go first, please? Yeah, thanks, Giles. So I think you touched on some of the key issues in the introduction. Um, we know that more and more consumers are taking up technology like solar power and batteries, and, and increasingly we'll see more electric vehicles uh, purchased as well, um, which which people are self-consuming, um, but they're also generating and exporting the surplus to the electricity grid. And as you've said, you know, by 2050, we're expecting something like 60 gigawatts and 50% of homes doing that. And this is really great because solar and, and other distributive energy can help accelerate the decarbonisation of the grid and improve grid reliability. And importantly for, um, for ACOS, also make energy more affordable for everyone. Um, but uh, the, part of the, some of the problems we're seeing is the grid was constructed decades ago and it wasn't designed for this two-way flow of energy um, and we're seeing some technical challenges happening at scale, um, is, especially in areas where there's existing network constraints and during peak periods and you've identified that South Australia um, is already experiencing that and increasingly southeast in Queensland and, and WA um, as well. Um, and I guess what we'll see is there'll be increasing costs to adapt the electricity grid to host more DER. We want more DER into the system because it will drive cheaper wholesale prices. Um, but the national electricity rules were also not designed for this two-way system um, and they're currently not encouraging the efficient and equitable investment of DER. So networks aren't properly planning, they're not incentivised to do so. Um, and so combine these technical issues and the old rules acting as a bit of a handbrake on the amount of solar that's being exported. And some people, as you identified, Giles, are having caps on how much they can ex export or not being able to export at all. And unless we start reforming the rules, um, this is only going to get worse. Uh, and it's bad for everyone. It means that you know, current solar owners um, don't get the full benefit of their system. New people who might want to add solar might be deterred because they don't think they're going to get value. And, you know, and if we don't price it right, low-income consumers may end up paying um, a little bit more. So we need to, to fix the system um, so that the benefits flow to, flow to everybody. So I guess from our perspective, what we're doing is we're um, in our rule change, which we've called more sun for everybody, for everyone, is that we're creating obligations and incentives for networks to optimise existing or invest in additional DR hosting capacity, um, improve access to export uh, to the grid for DR owners and allocate the costs more fairly when costs to export more outweigh the benefits for all consumers. 
Like, it sounds like it might be a, 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 a tricky juxtaposition. So maybe um, I'd like to invite Mark to give his perspective now. And Mark is with the Total Environment Centre. He's been a long-term campaigner and um, has done some great work. I've been dealing with Mark for about a decade now, and he's been highly involved in some of the reforms trying to push through the um, various regulators' institutions and most recently um, was part of a group who had great success with the demand management scheme. So thank, congratulations on that, Mark. And perhaps you'd like to give your perspective of, of how you see um, of this side of the proposal, and then we'll get um, have some questions and get into the detail. Okay, thanks, Charles. Um, yeah, I, I guess I should begin by acknowledging, as you did, that this is a sensitive issue for a lot of people. You know, we've got 2.2 million households who've invested their money in rooftop solar, and you know, are entitled to a decent payback on that. And uh, uh, the, I guess the issue for us is that. Um, a decade ago, we had zero solar in the system. Now we've got nine gigawatts. We're looking at a future of maybe, uh, according to SIRO estimates, up to 50, gig <coughs> sorry, 50 gigawatts by 2050. And if you look at the National Electricity Rules, there's 1,640 pages of rules there. And about three of those pages deal with the exports. And you know, with 50 gigawatts of solar, it's likely that more than half of those will be exported to the grid, I think about um, one third of energy uh, generated by rooftop solar is self-consumed and the rest is exported to the grid. So we've got vast amounts of exports coming uh, and we've got only a very blunt instrument of connection agreements to, to deal with them. So we're looking at uh, uh, updating the rules on a gradual basis. This is not a very radical rule change request ours, um, but kind of baby a number of baby steps along the road to a more cost-reflective two-way import-export pricing regime. Uh, but I think it's important to note at the outset that there's nothing in our rule change request, at least, that would force solar owners to pay to export to the grid. In fact, as Kelly said, we're intending to introduce a number of reforms that would actually give them more opportunities to export to the grid. So the thing that got it over the line for me after... Um, I guess a few years ago, being kind of fairly suspicious of any attempt to reform the nature of uh, solar and other distributed energy exports to the grid, is the idea that this could be good for solar, you know, good for batteries, good for electric cars, and good for household demand response as well. There are real advantages there because there are some roadblocks there at the moment. So we don't want to cook the goose that laid the golden egg. We just kind of, you know, want to make it lay more eggs. I'm wondering maybe then if you can just explain a little bit. You you want to allow um, solar households to be able to export. In fact, you want more people to be able to export. In fact, you want I'm, I'm guessing you'll want all people to be able to export and they'll be able to do that because the networks will be able to invest in whatever infrastructure um, that um, that is needed to allow that to happen. However, you do seem to be suggesting that there be a fee if you want to export a certain amount or more. So what exactly are you proposing there? Do you have any ideas? I mean, would it be a 10, would you have to pay more if you wanted to do more than 10 kilowatts or 15 kilowatts or would it be a percentage? Do you, could you explain to the listeners a little bit how that might work? Charles, so, Charles, I wonder, I, I wonder, sorry, Mark, I wonder if I might, ask just before we get that for the benefit of our listeners and actually for my benefit as well because one of the debates here is about how much of a problem it actually is at the moment accepting that it can become a problem in the future do you have 
any numbers that suggest how much residential curtailment is actually occurring uh, at the moment anywhere? Well, there's two forms of curtailment. The one is around um, tripping due to over-voltage, and we do have some good numbers on that due to the recent work from UNSW for the Energy Security Board. You know, it's, it's across the, the name, it's in the order of one, one and a half percent of energy. It's a very small amount overall, but it, for the people affected, it tends to be a small, small number of people who are affected a lot more than one and a half percent. But the bigger uh, issue in the longer term is uh, export limits. So pretty much everybody on the residential uh, side of the equation is export limited to three or five kilowatts. And we're told anecdotally that a lot more people are being export limited to zero. And the networks don't tell you how many people are affected this, this way. It's all anecdotal at the moment. But according to the uh, Electricity Statement of Opportunities, I think it was in 2018, we're likely to see a quarter of all substations uh, suffering reverse flows by 2025. And that would require uh, more extensive curtailment to you know, close to zero. So we will well, try I mean, and get some numbers on that. Yeah, well, it, it, I, I do think that the first thing is the distribution companies could actually explain a bit more, and and you know we could have, we could talk about uh, three phase versus single phase export limits, and and then we could talk about street level uh, substations versus zonal substations, and and that you know because I think one of the things in your proposal, but let, let's go back to Giles's question and and uh, and understand what it is that the proposal. Uh, actually is that, that, that you have up there for your rule change. So, Charles, do you want me to go through it? Yes, please, yeah. Um, and, um, yes, so, it, yeah, maybe, and, and perhaps I can add a question in here too, is um, you, you could say how that might work and do you have any sort of, you know, sort of parameters that you're thinking of? And I, I guess the next question, and, and maybe that can be another question up and down the track, is how much do you think needs to be spent? Okay, so you've zeroed in on the uh, the pricing issue, which is reasonable, but our rule change request doesn't deal much with pricing. It's more about network planning and investment and access and connection. A uh, couple of the other rule changes from Vinnie's and South Australia uh, SA Power Networks deal more with pricing, but putting that to one side. There are six elements to our will change requests. So I'll just you know run through them at a kind of very high level. Um, the first one is a requirement for the networks to produce a DR integration strategy every five years. That's kind of the, the DR equivalent of the tariff structure statement they already have to do. Uh, then there's um, a requirement for them to make the best use of existing hosting capacity, um, uh, possibly through a, an amendment to this the STIPIS, the Service Target Performance Incentive Scheme. And then we've got a net benefit market test, which would allow networks to recover any investment to augment hosting capacity uh, where they thought that there would be a net market benefit, where, the, in other words, the benefits to all consumers outweigh the cost. They would be able to recover the cost from all consumers. Uh, then we've got a uh, possibility for uh, prosumers to uh, increase the export limits where there isn't a net market benefit and that's where they would pay. But the payment might be a second connection 
agreement. Uh, you know, you could go from naught to five or say three to five or five to seven kilowatts. And if there isn't a net market benefit, you could pay for it. But the, the um, increase in income more than offsets any increase in charges to recover what we know now of the likely uh, network cost to augment capacity for over voltage or uh, for thermal capacity issues. And then the two other things that are part of the rule change request are a requirement for networks to offer some kind of export capacity. So at the moment, as I said, they can offer zero. They can just restrict it totally, which means there's a lot of wasted energy, an increasing amount of wasted energy that's not being sent back into the grid. So we're suggesting that there should be a three kilowatt minimum export limit. And then finally, there should be a new pricing principle to allocate export capacity fairly. So again, at the moment, you can get people who um, put their PV on early, getting five or 10 kilowatts or an unlimited export into the grid and people who come in later, subject to five or three or zero. So we're saying for future connections, there should be some sort of principle around the fair allocation of that hosting capacity, whatever it is. So uh, back to I, your I've question. Yeah. Oh, go on, sorry. No, no, no. No, go on. no, go on, David. Well, the first thing I was just going to say on that on that on that last point, you know, it'll tend to be that the guys who got on early, who who can export anything, in fact, have smaller systems because, as we know, the average size of the system started out at one and a half kilowatts and's gradually grown up to to what it is today. Um, um, look, I, I also wanted to ask, just while we're trying to understand, I, I mean, it's not, this is in a sense a technical area as well as a general rule request, and it kind of surprises me that uh, ACOS and Vinnie's are so interested, and, and I always understand uh, motivation, and I, is, this, is there some sort of uh, agenda, let's be honest, uh, about uh, solar owners sort of benefiting at the expense of uh, generally less well-off non-solar owners? Is, is that part of what's going on here? Maybe that's a question for Kelly. Yeah, thanks, David. Look, our prime motivation uh, to engage in this with the Total Environment Centre is, as I said, the problems that we've seen, ACOS um, have, do advocate strongly for a faster decarbonisation of the electricity grid because we see that climate with the climate crisis um, will impact on people um, as well as the environment and the economy but in particular people on low income so it's really incumbent that you know we support um, a faster decarbonisation of the grid and you know we acknowledge that solar and other distributive energy services can play an important role in doing that and as I mentioned earlier it, ha it has other benefits like um, you know, reliability for the grid, but also lowering wholesale prices, which makes energy more affordable for everyone. So we're certainly supportive about having more solar in the grid. And as I mentioned um, earlier, we're, we're advocating for um, governments to invest in uh, solar for low-income households. So all social housing, public and community housing, should have solar on it, um, whether it's new or, or retrofitted um, and the same for low-income homeowners who are predominantly pensioners um, who might own their home but then don't have the income to be able to invest. So, you know, we're certainly encouraging um, 
targeting low-income households to put more solar on there. So, you know, this part of this rule change for us is actually about, as we said, enabling more solar in the grid and, and more exports as well. So those benefits flow to everybody. Um, and, you know, I guess then the next part of that is then to make sure that this transition is fair and, and equitable. And, you know, at the moment, solar is certainly providing a, a net benefit to people, as we've said, through, through lower wholesale prices. Um, and therefore, the cost should be shared by, by everyone. But, you know, as we, as we get more technical um, issues going into the grid and the costs get more expensive, then we need to make sure that where there's not a market benefit for everyone then, um, but a private benefit, um, then that people with that private benefit should pay for that. Would it be fair to say that you and St. Vincent de Paul, for instance, I mean, you mentioned, we, we mentioned them and they're putting in the competing um, proposal, don't come at this from the same angle? I mean, don't want to sort of harp greatly on that, but I think St. Vincent de Paul has a slightly different take on the benefits of the impact of rooftop solar than, than ACOS, for instance, and maybe approaching this from a different point of view. Oh, look, I think, and if you look at the Vinnie's rule change, they certainly acknowledge, also acknowledge the benefits of, of solar. Um, I guess, you know, we, and, 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 you know, to be honest, part of this process that TEC and ACOS initiated was partly off the back of some of the work that Vinnie's have been doing in this space for a little while, as, as well as, um, you know, the AMC's ENERF, um, um paper from last year that identified these problems as well. So, you know, we we approached AMC and Arena and, and the networks and a bunch of others to work together and, we, you know, we've essentially gone through a 10-month consultation process, three workshops, um, 120 stakeholders, a reference group as well to, you know, to work with the industry and consumers to look at what the problems are and what the solutions are. So, our rule change is reflecting um, most of the feedback we got through that process. And as Mark said, um, you know, we're going, this rule change is the first step. We want to look at potentially next year a second step, which could be full two-way pricing, but we acknowledge that there are complexities with that, um, you know, what model to implement and potential complexities for consumers. And we want to make sure we get that right. Um, and we also want to make sure it links to the Energy Security Board's post-2025 market structure review. So we, you know, from TEC and ACOS's perspective, we're, we're holding off additional reform and until um, we've done more consultation and we've seen what the Energy Security Board puts forward. And I, I might come back to... to to Mark, I guess, or Kelly, whoever would like to take it. Uh, Mark mentioned 600 and something pages of rules, none of which actually actually mention the most important thing, which is decarbonisation, because that's not in the national uh, uh, objective. And, and, and I, I'm not sure that lower prices is the, should be the only, but that's me. But my point is, and th only three pages are devoted to a sector which, as you say, is already nine gigawatts at maximum output or close to it. Uh, I guess my bigger question is: there's so many reform processes going on, and I've, and including the 2025 one, I just wonder 
whether maybe we shouldn't we just we keep on just trying to design the rules that for an old game and just modify them should maybe there'd be a case for throwing the whole rule book out and starting the whole thing from scratch again uh, i just wonder oh, if the, you ever think yeah yeah absolutely um i'm definitely of a similar mindset uh i had a workshop on that theme called nerd 2.0 a couple of years ago we got to a consensus at the end of the day that yes the rules were not fit for purpose anymore but um, we didn't get much further than that around the design of the new architecture for them. And you would hope that the ESB's post-2025 work would go somewhere down that track, but I'm not sure that it would go nearly as far down as you or I might like. On the NEO, I've been working on that for the last decade and actually managed to get a group submission up uh, into the Finkel Review. One of the recommendations was around the need for the AMC to kind of consider uh, reform of the NEO but it's a legal issue it's in the it's in the law not the rules which means that it has to be passed by the Coag Energy Council and then implemented by all the state governments and the you know the political reality thanks to the leadership of the Coag Energy Council at the moment is that there's just it's just going you know going to go nowhere until we get a change of federal government and then if we had that kind of leadership I think there might be an opportunity to reform the NEO and we would like affordability as well as um, decarbonisation to be in there. And they were in there, um, you know, in the lead up to the, the National Electricity Rules being implemented around 1998, I think. And we were kind of pulled out at the last moment. Um, and Mark, so, yeah. I'm, I'm going to run out. Run out we, I'm conscious of how much time we've already chewed up on, and we've only just started talking in, in a sense. But um, and, and also I'm pinching one of Giles's questions. But... Uh, uh, the other thing is that this is such a complex area in terms of uh, technical abilities. Like you've got all these things about what inverters can and can't do. We've got uh, virtual power plants and community batteries feeding in here and, uh, and uh, you know, a whole new control schemes in the grid that's my, my bugbear as inertia goes down and we're expecting to see grid form inverters. Your proposals don't in some ways sort of uh, park all of that stuff off to a side and don't really have a concept of how the whole fundamental architecture of, of the grid is going to change uh, as we go forward. Well, when you're talking about technical standards, there's so much activity in the space that we can't possibly anticipate it, especially given the pace of reform and the NEM, you know, which is so slow. We're looking at a reform here that would not be implemented probably until 2024, uh, so we're kind of looking at the you know the future system rather than the current one. There's a lot of work being done around those issues that you're talking about, but we're looking at a, a broader reform that would uh, enable cost recovery or the re reward of benefits, however they pan out. So you know if, for instance, it turns out that for the foreseeable future, the market benefits of more solar and battery and EV energy into the system outweigh the costs, even you know, the cost of integrating all the uh, DR with all the technical changes required. If that's the case, then there's no need for a cost recovery. We can just look at how to distribute the benefits. So it's, it's intended to be kind of neutral in that respect. It's Kelly here. Yeah, I mean, certainly at the beginning of this process, we acknowledge that there's lots of challenges and we, we had to limit scope and also be aware of some of the work that's being done elsewhere so the you know the energy security board's also looking at technical standards as well so we didn't want to cross over to that 
But I just also wanted to go back to a question you um, said before, asked before, David, and just to back up Mark, ACOS um, has also been advocating for decarbonisation, affordability and equity, equity to be included in the NEO as well. Um, and one of the things that actually came out of this process from the first workshop we had where we looked at, you know, what are the, what are the things that consumers care about um, is this is the development of a new energy compact, um, which we've started and we're aiming to finish by the end of this year uh, and launch sometime in October. But that new energy comment, compact sort of looks at five areas where decarbonisation is one of those areas, forward-looking, meeting consumer needs um, and, and those sorts of principles are really important and you know we're certainly we've engaged the energy bodies um, and and government in this new energy compact and we're hoping that it informs um, ongoing reform processes um, to make sure that you know we are forward looking and we are doing what's in the best interest of everybody. I've got a couple of little questions, but before that, just make a quick observation. Um, it sort of amuses me to hear people sort of say that the uh, the rules are, um, are no longer fit for purpose. And um, I, I read Alan Pears the other day who said, well, the rules were never fit for purpose precisely because the environmental part of it was taken out, as you observed from the NEO, which is um, the National Environmental Objectives, um, before it came into effect in 1998. And I still quite under can't quite understand how it was or who it was that actually pulled them out at the last minute, apart from to observe that it happened to the Howard government's so perhaps it wasn't a big surprise. Um, Mark, I don't know whether there's a quick response to that, but I've got two real quick questions. One is, is there some estimate of what sort of money the networks need to spend on, you know, um, substations, things like that? You know, is it in the in, in the single millions? Is it in the tens of millions? It is, is it in the hundreds of millions? Um, or is it just not possible to know? And can we trust the networks telling us the truth? And secondly, um, this export thing, I mean, that really comes back down to sort of battery storage. How does battery storage and the opportunity of that come into this equation and affects the way you want to design this? So at least two questions and possibly a third there. <laughs> okay. So the first question was the one about... Well, well how do the environment... Is, is it easy to answer in one minute or, 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 or 10 seconds how the environmental rules never made it into the NEO? An active bastard, bastardry, I presume. <laughs> An act of bastardy by one particular senior federal government bureaucrat who you know, took the red pen out and removed it. Unfortunately, I think it's that simple. Bloody hell. There you go. Um, maybe that's another discussion, a discussion for another time. Tell me, do you have an estimated cost of the networks then to improve their substations and other infrastructure uh, to allow? Well, so. obviously, it depends on the amount of uptake of DR and how we manage it. And, you know, there's always one more than one way to skin a cat and if we get smart about batteries and demand response and you know, load shifting, uh, then obviously it reduces the amount they have to spend. But as an indication in the current regulatory period, uh, SA Power Networks uh, got about $30 million and the um, Victorian Networks, which are aiming for more augmentation rather than uh, optimization of existing hosting capacity, we're looking at about $50 million each, I think. So. Um, you know, if we extrapolated that out over 10 years, I worked out at some point it's it's about 1% of network revenue and costs. 
over you know, a, a 10 year period for the next 10 years, 1% one, 1 of the revenue is a relatively small amount of money. And what was the next question? Well, that suggests then that might be a small oh, fee for, to pay for the, for, for the exports. Um, the other one is um, maybe, maybe talk about batteries here and what role they could play to either sort of mitigate the need for exports or how you design a, um, a tariff with batteries in mind. Do you want to actually encourage more people to have batteries and VPPs and things like that or, or how do you think about that? I think the natural consequence over time of this kind of reform would be that energy which is um, exported into the grid during the time of the day when there's a lot of solar in the system and not a lot of demand would not be valued and may even cause cost to the, the, the network, whereas energy going back into the grid in the evening peak is not just a value to the, uh, the owner of the battery for uh, the wholesale market benefits or FCAS or whatever. But, so, uh, so that's maybe, what that's that's what we see at the moment. So, also, so, to maybe I'll just finish my sentence if I may. Otherwise, I'll lose the thought. Um, may also be a benefit to the network because it can, in some locations, relieve network constraints. So, I think the long term, um, one of the long term shifts that would be likely to happen as a result of this kind of reform would be uh, an incentivisation for more investment in in behind the meter and community scale batteries. So, so I, I, I mean, one of the problems in the system, and I agree with that very strongly, one of the problems in the system at the moment is that utility solar, which might, or, uh, considering all costs, might or might not be cheaper than household solar, uh, certainly can't compete with it at the moment because it sees a price signal that household solar doesn't, uh, owner installer just yeah. doesn't see. So that part I think is very clear. The other way I'd say, rather than talking about the 30% uh, of capacity that's uh, used, it's better to think about how much of the household uh, uh, self-consumption is actually full fulfilled. You know, what, what we want to do is it's the cheapest, clearly in the long run, at least I think it is, uh, to have the household use as much of the solar as close to the point of uh, as possible. So if, if solar's been exported, my first question always is, is, is that really the best use of it? Or shouldn't, wouldn't it, can't we somehow move the household to using more uh, internally uh, for, for their own purposes? And, uh, that's right. And there are some uh, consumption tariffs which are being designed in order to, you know, to incentivise that, like SA Power Network's solar sponge tariff, so that it'll incentivise more soaking up of the excess solar in the local grid with um, you know pool pumps and hot water and the like, but SAPN you know, tells me that that's kind of got a limited um, uh, capacity to help their long-term problem, and that it's a sort of fairly short-term solution that won't be effective in five or ten years' time. So we're looking at a longer-term reform that would complement that. Charles, I'm conscious we're uh, uh, moving along on the on the time. Uh, yes, look, we're probably just getting to the last couple of minutes. So, look, guys, maybe I just invite both of you just to sort of, you know, um, twenty seconds each. Just what what is it that you want to reinforce the listeners about this proposal and what you're trying to achieve here? Kelly, do you want to have a first go at that? Um, you know, twenty seconds, twenty five. I won't be counting, but you know, keep it reasonably brief. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so, twenty seconds or less. Um, Look, I think that the main thing that we want to get across to people is is this is really about incentivising 
um, the uptake of more solar and, and distributive energy into the grid and the export of that um, and, and making sure we get a faster decarbonisation of grid, um, you know, more affordable energy um, in, in such a way that benefits everybody. Um, Mark? Thanks, Charles. So one thing we haven't talked about, so in my last 20 seconds is just to, to mention that we need this kind of reform in order to get the benefits of uh, local or distributed energy, uh, for instance, through uh, allowing local use of system tariffs, which would improve the business case of things like solar gardens and community batteries and peer-to-peer -peer trading. We really need this kind of flexible future-oriented framework in order to be able to make things like that happen. We, we, we want... We, no, I, I agree with Mark. We want this sort of local concept, you know. I, I think the clear idea that we're trying to build up is local microgrids, essentially, uh, being either physically or virtually created uh, with local pricing and, and then voltage being used as a currency to sort of... for. Uh, export to, to ever wider areas. Uh, I think that is the way it's going to go. And, and, but it's, it's not an easy system to add on to the existing one. No, I had a crack at this a few years ago through a local generation network credit rule change request which went nowhere. But um, we'll keep plugging away at it. We want to see local use of system charges so that you get, you get charged for the amount of the system that you use, not for you know, the full network charges as soon as you cross the, the metre. The, the trouble is, uh, the reason, uh, again, it's socially inequitable. People who are a long way in the country will feel disadvantaged by it. But anyway, let's, let's, we, we've run out of time. Every area you go down is a... Not if it's only export-oriented. Hmm. It won't change consumption time. We could probably continue this conversation yeah. for a long time because there's a lot of details to go through. Um, look, it's been a fascinating conversation. <laughs> One, because solar is, rooftop solar is, look, it, it, it's a small thing. It's a couple of thousand dollars. People put it on their roofs. A lot of people just forget about it after they do it. Um, some people sit there and, and look at their, um, their, their monitoring devices and are quite obsessed about it and um, run around and switch things on and off and things like that. But look, together, it is an incredibly important part of the grid. Um, in, if AEMO is right, then it's going to be, you know, reaching... Um, or eliminating minimum demand in South Australia within a couple of years and providing 50% of the whole grid's demand at certain times um, in a couple of decades' time. So it's something that we've got to get right. And look, good for you guys for putting this proposal in and be fascinated to see how it goes and please keep in contact. So um, Kelly Court from ACOS, thanks very much for um, joining the podcast and, um, and to Mark Byrne also from the Total Environment Centre. Thanks, Giles. Much appreciated. Thanks, Charles and David. Yeah, and look, thank you, guys. Yeah, and just hang on for a, for a second, um, David. I'm just going to thank our sponsors as well, um, Evergen and Solaray Energy, for their ongoing and continued support. Um, keeps us in cafe lattes where we can discuss this uh, virtually. Um, just briefly, just anything else out there um, just to discuss before we close off the podcast. I just want to make one mention that is of the Dundonald Wind Farm in Victoria, which was going gangbusters, was meeting its construction timetable and even its commissioning timetable until, hey presto, at about a 30% hold point, it gets told by EMA there seems to be a problem. So clearly the connection issues for large-scale solar are not resolved yet. No, I, I think, um, you know, um, everyone wants to 
not to be t- attribute too much blame, but I do think this far in, AEMO should have a better handle on it. That's that's what it really amounts to. I I, I think the you know there the really should be a penalty on AEMO in the same way we talked about stippers very briefly, which is a technical sort of incentive for networks. But AEMO has to have some kind of performance incentive as well. It can't just go around making willy-nilly rule changes, essentially uh, putting people out of money because it discovers after the fact that it can't keep to its end of the bargain. I mean, it's agreed a standard in this one, and it's not the far from the first time it's happened. And then after it's agreed something, it, it changes the rules. There has to be a penalty on IEMO somehow uh, for that. That's what I think. Well, and I think your views is echoed by the um, Tilt Renewables, who own um, Dundonald Wind Farm and have also advertised a um, or flagged a quite a significant drop in their anticipated profits at least over the next six months because of this delay. Look, I think we'll wrap it there, David. Once again, thank you very much. Thanks to Mark. Thanks to Kelly. And thanks to all the listeners out there. Um, We'll be back again, same time. Well, we'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, a market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant generating significant value for consumers, network operators, and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy of the future. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by SolarAy Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.